right, so today we get to turn to Zechariah once again, and uh, we're going to be in chapters 9 and 10. So last week uh, was chapter 8, and David preached for, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes or something like that, probably. So this week I have two chapters. I think that means I get an hour and a half. So we'll be here for a while, just go order Arby's or something, and uh, we will look at a couple chapters together. I want to start just by reading through them so we get kind of an overall feel for the context of this. One thing I want to point out as before I read is if you look, even in your Bibles, it's probably structured a little differently, set off a little differently. The previous chunks in general have all been kind of like overall words and declarative uh, structures from the Lord of like this is happening, descriptive sort of stuff. And now we're about to shift into an oracle, a song, that very possibly is a response to what's already been said, like recognizing what God is saying is going to do and then flushing it out further. But chapter 9 and 10 are both set off in this poetic song-type form. Um, So let's read those together. Uh, If you would stand as I read out of the, as we listen to God's word together. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire." Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It, too, shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see it with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar." On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. 
For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young man flourish and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. For the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. And they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord." I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in the far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you for all the word that you have given throughout time to your people. Thank you, Spirit, that you continue to speak anew every time that we read your scripture. And we trust you this morning to to speak anew, to make this text alive in our hearts, to take printed words that were printed by a publisher and instead bring them to life, that we would be convicted, that we would be given hope, that we would be renewed, all because of your goodness, all because of the peace that you bring. Help us now as we look at, at these two chapters that you would bring clarity to what you are trying to say. In Jesus' name, amen. World War II was an interesting and very hard time for Jews in Germany. One of those uh, was a guy named Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl wrote a book that some of you may know, many of you may not. Depends on which classes you happen to have in school. Uh, But he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl was a Jew who lived in the concentration camps. Like he was thrown into them. He existed in them. And the hope of being with his family again, the hope of writing a book someday, these sorts of things kept him alive. And he came out of the concentration camps many years later. He eventually went into like counseling and dealing with people and caring for people. And a key part of what he pointed out was the power of hope for our future and the power, the way that someone having a future hope empowers and gives life to their present existence. So he wrote 
specifically, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. This is what he observed in the concentration camps. The ones who died, obviously like if they were gassed or something, that's different, but the ones who died in general during the labor and all this were the ones who lost hope of the future. When hope died, they died effectively, and it was only a matter of time. By contrast, those who maintained hope, those who saw the future with clarity, were the ones who lived, like him and like others that he observed. And the thing that we get in this chunk of two chapters, this beautiful song, is the foundation for lasting hope. It it shows us a beautiful sovereign and a glorious hope. It shows us what it looks like to trust in God who is over all things. So we have, as I said earlier, essentially a song that follows up on these descriptive texts. And we have roughly four different sections that emphasize the process that God's going to go through as he promises things for the future. In all of this, you'll see, if you pay attention or if you already noted as I was reading it, to the the verbs, it's all future tense, future tense, future tense. The Lord will, the Lord will, the Lord will. This will happen, that will happen, these things will change. It's all looking toward what is yet to come. And yet it proclaims it with certainty. So as we dive into this, the the goal that we want to see as we look through these sections, is the ability for us as God's people to hope forever in the sovereign, all-sufficient Savior. That this is, this is who we can hope in, and we can have a hope that lasts through everything if we place it in the right place. The sovereign, all-sufficient Savior, he is worthy of our hope. So first of all, in the first chunk, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, God will punish the wicked kind of the first point, the first summary that we see here, that the wicked will not last forever, even as the psalm that we read earlier talks about, God, will you forget us forever, that sort of thing. The answer is no, and we see it promised in sections like this. The first four verses, basically, or five, first five verses, God's calling out to different areas, Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, uh, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Gaza again, Ashkelon again. Or even in verse 6, the mixed people in Ashdod and Philistia. So all these different cities that he calls out, towns, and we just go, okay, yeah, 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 sure, Hadrach, Damascus, whatever, and we just keep reading because we didn't live there at the time. We didn't live there at all, so we don't know what that means contextually. And so, uh, Michael, if you can throw up that image of the map. Um, All right. So you can see in the center here is Jerusalem for kind of a rough context of where would they have been that's Jerusalem. They were exiled away, and then they came back. Right? So the people who Zechariah is currently speaking to are people who are back in Jerusalem. And you can see there's Damascus, there's Sidon and Tyre, there's Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron. So these are surrounding cities. And the whole section over here with the lake and the little river up to another lake, that's a mountain section that you couldn't cross. So this is also why in the scripture when we read that the enemies will come from the north or from the south, they might have been far off to the west, but they would come from the north or the south because they didn't come straight across that mountain range. So again, lake and river section, that's a mountain range. So you come either from the north or from the south. So these surrounding cities are all the ones that would have been impacting 
Jerusalem's existence. This here, it says Alexander's route because the most direct fulfillment of what God's saying here in these verses lines up very directly with the man we call Alexander the Great, the conqueror from back in those days who led a great conquest all throughout the area. And he started up in the north and worked his way to the west and worked his way down. The text here talks about, in verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust. Tyre was set off basically as an island at the time from the land. Some of you who are history buffs may know this story, but Alexander came through, and after he had conquered Damascus and Sidon, he came down to Tyre. Tyre was a full mile off the coast, sitting on an island, strong, powerful, impenetrable, right? We've got the water in the way. Alexander's like, no, man, I'm the conqueror. So he told his guys, pick up all this rubble here and build a land bridge. And they built a land bridge. On the sweat in the backs of soldiers, they built a mile-long bridge of land to Tyre, and then they conquered it. They took it down, sacked it. Still to this day, Tyre is now a peninsula because of the land bridge that Alexander and his men built way back then. So like pre-times of Jesus, that's over 2,000 years ago, the geographic structure of Tyre's existence was forever changed because even though they had built themselves a rampart and heaped up silver like dust, the conqueror who God had appointed to come through as part of their punishment would still get them nonetheless. Alexander continued down through Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Akron, came to Jerusalem and actually was turned away. I actually right now forget the circumstances of it. I wish I had written them down. But he, he did not end up sacking Jerusalem. He turned away and went the other direction, continued along on his route. So even as we're reading God saying to the people, I will bring change, I will bring judgment against Hadrach, Damascus, all these, very quickly thereafter, that punishment was brought through Alexander's conquest. But then we have an interesting dynamic because that fits with the first six verses. But then look again at verse 7. He's referring to Philistia from verse 6 when he says its. I will take away its blood from its mouth. I will take away Philistia's blood from Philistia's mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now that's not conquest in the same way. That's not punishment. That's not destruction. The blood from its mouth, what is that referring to? Well, if you might recall from the Old Testament in like Leviticus and other structures where God's saying, here are the clean animals and here's how you should prepare things. One of the key things that he told the Israelites to do was drain the blood. You shall not drink the blood. The surrounding nations would drink the blood. They'd eat the blood. They'd just, you know, bite straight into the, the meat or whatever. It was no big deal to them. They would have blood between their teeth. They would have abominations between their teeth because they're eating unclean. They're demonstrating that they aren't following God because they're not like the people of God. But God says, I will take away. He doesn't say, I'll take away Philistia's existence. He doesn't say, I'll take away their desire to live. He doesn't say, I'll take away their breath. He says, I'll take away the blood from between its mouth. Like this thing they've been doing that's an abomination, that's a symbol that they don't follow me. I'm taking that away. And they too shall be a remnant. So God is, yes, dealing with the surrounding areas in judgment through Alexander, but he's also promising to deal with their sin, 
to deal with what's behind their wrongdoing and to redeem them even. That, that basically Gentiles, not using the same term in the Old Testament, but the nations around shall become part of God's people. Verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. So he's going to punish and destroy some. He's also going to redeem and bring in others. Because the thing is, God sees behind the human actions. He sees behind what's going on from the human enemy to the real enemy. And he sees that the real enemy is sin. The human is just the face of that sin and can be redeemed. And praise God, that's why we're all sitting here today, right? <laughs> because he's continued and continued and continued to see the real enemy and fight the real enemy. So he can say the enemy, Philistia, which is, the Philistines are like the, along with Babylon, they're like the classic bad guy enemy when we're talking about those who are opposed to Israel, opposed to God's people. And he says, Philistia shall become a remnant for God. Even those horrible enemies who did horrible things, I will redeem them. I'll rescue them. In the world of computers and email over the past decade, things keep getting worse and worse because there's bad actors and they do all sorts of bad things. And we've all kind of learned that when you get a random email from someone you know that says, hey, you should definitely click on this link because I need to give you $3,000 right now, we don't believe it. You know, David Lyles isn't emailing me to give me $3,000. We go, oh, hey, it looks like you probably got hacked. That's our first response in most cases to that. We call them up, we email back, or whatever. we say, hey, it looks like your account got hacked. Or when, when their Facebook page says all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally expect, you go, I think your Facebook page got hacked. We've, we've learned to see behind the statement that's made, to see the real action that's happening. Or oftentimes when, when hackers are trying to hit a big target, they'll go through a different place to hide their actions. So maybe they go through your business to get to someone else's business, so all of their bad activity looks like it's coming from your business. If we don't see behind the bad actions to where the real bad actor is, we're going to accuse the wrong person. If we aren't able to see behind the bad actions of human beings to see the real enemy of sin, we're going to miss the real crux of the matter. Because then we're going to be all mad at the people who, you know, espouse values we don't like or who, you know, perform actions we don't like or who hurt us or any number of things. We won't see the real problem. And this isn't just at the big societal level. I want to encourage us all to kind of step back from thinking big picture for a second and think of your parenting of your children or thinking of your interactions with your siblings. When people are busy fighting with each other or they're busy disobeying or they're busy doing any number of actions, we'd say that's wrong. What's the real problem? The real problem is not that my child woke up this morning and said, I'm going to rebel against dad as much as I possibly can. The real problem is my child's struggling with sin. The real problem is not that my sibling and, and I just, you know, have decided we're going to hate each other for a while. The real problem is there's an undercurrent of sin that we're struggling with and dealing with. And if we're going to come alongside each other well, as parents, as siblings, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're going to come alongside instead of come over the top in condemnation, we have to realize who is the real enemy. And as we do that, we are being like God who can both punish the wicked and redeem Philistia at the same time because he sees behind and he knows the real enemy is much bigger 
and much broader. Or as Paul says in Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. There's a lot more going on than just the faces we see. So God's going to punish the wicked, and he's going to redeem some of them as well. But then secondly, he's going to deliver his people. In chapter 9, verse 9 to 17, we see this description of how God is going to deliver and redeem and rescue. And it starts right off with, with two glorious verses. As a transition, when we said he's going to punish the wicked and he's going to rescue some, how is he going to rescue some? Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, seated on a donkey. There's the answer immediately to how is it possible that he would bring Philistia as a remnant. He is bringing the king. He is bringing the king who will come to redeem, to rescue, verse 10, to speak peace to the nations. Not just peace even to God's own people, but peace to the nations beyond the borders of Israel, out to the Gentiles, to the world at large, God is going to speak peace through his king. It's an amazing description just to start off this passage as a transition from the previous where he's saying these areas will be judged and then it's rejoice. Your king is coming. He is righteous. He has salvation that he's bringing. He's humble and he's riding a donkey. So kids in the room, Let's see if anyone wants to join in on this one. What animal do kings normally ride? Horses? Yeah, we got nods. Everyone think that's about right? Kings should ride a horse? Or maybe an elephant if they're in Persia? Huh? A chariot? Yeah, sometimes a king might ride in a chariot. Horses, elephants, chariots, and the chariots are probably pulled by a horse. These are all powerful animals, right? Powerful situations. This says... God's king is going to come riding a donkey. There's a huge difference here when you say the king's coming riding a donkey. He's not trying to display how amazing and glorious he is to conquer everyone. He's coming in with power and with strength as described. He's righteous and having salvation so he can deliver, but he's coming in on a donkey because he is humble and near. He's meek. He doesn't have a need to prove his dominance He just has a need to rescue and deliver and love and care for his people. Jesus sets such an example for us when he comes and fulfills this text. This is quoted in the New Testament, talking about Jesus riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. You might actually recall from back in our study in Mark earlier this year, when it's talking about Jesus having the donkey untied for him, and it references back to this text. This is a huge thing because we have so much pomp and circumstance and so much braggadocio that goes on in our culture. And the one who's the best is clearly the one who brags the hardest and people listen. And you, you know that they're awesome because they say they're awesome. Because I said so, I must be. Right? This, is, this is the driving force that dominates our culture. And instead, Jesus comes in as the one who's worthy of everything, of the one whose presence should say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because what? He's going to ride through on a chariot and nope, he's coming in on a donkey. Because he can redeem you. He is powerful to do so, but he also knows exactly where to apply that power and when. And he's not about self-promotion as if he's the greatest thing on earth. He's about loving and caring and being with you. And he is the greatest one on earth. (laughs) So the only one who actually could do that properly and be directing praise to himself accurately is also the one who is not too concerned about doing so. 
because he's come to love and provide salvation. He's going to come. He's going to bring peace to the nations. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. The covenant. We're hundreds of years later at this point in Zechariah from the time that God said to Abraham, I'm setting a covenant with you. Or from the time that God said to Noah, this is my covenant about how I will or won't destroy the earth. And God's saying, here we are. I say hundreds, it's actually like a thousand, couple thousand years later. God's still saying, because of my covenant, I'm going to do this. I have promised this. God is faithful to what he said. He's always faithful to what he said. And here he is just demonstrating that. Like, guys, because of you, or, or, or for you, because of my covenant. He doesn't say, because you've earned it, because you've returned to me, because you're so cool now, because whatever. No, the reason that he says, I will set the prisoners free, is because of his covenant. In Genesis 15, when God is what's called cutting the covenant with Abraham, when they actually have the animals, they cut them, God passes through them, God puts Abraham to sleep. Normally, when they would cut a covenant, both parties of the covenant would walk between the animals. The animals would be cut in half and spread out on either side, and you'd walk between them. And it was basically like a way of saying, if I don't keep my side of this covenant, let me be as these animals. Like I'm putting my life on the line for this covenant. I will do this. So God's like, Abraham, we're going to do this covenant. Abraham's like, cool. Cuts the animals, set them aside, and then God says, sleep. And Abraham's sleeping, and God passes through the animals himself, and Abraham doesn't. God sets a one-way covenant based on himself that this will be kept. I read it said one time that when God walked through that, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit symbolically passed through the animals, there Jesus' sentence was cast for the cross. Because God already knew the people of Israel would not keep this, and he had only bound himself and his own life to this covenant. Here we are 2,000 years later, and God says, because of my covenant with you, 2,000 years of ups and downs, of failure and triumph, of abject sin that sent the people into exile, and God says, because of my covenant, I'm still going to rescue you. Because I'm still good to my word, even though you failed just as I knew you would. This is still true today. God still is good to his covenant, even when we fail, as he knows we will. (laughs) He's still good to his promises every day and on and on into eternity because he is faithful. So this leads to a really awesome phrase in this text, in the next next verse, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. That's an odd combination of words. I really love it. Prisoners. Normally, prisoners are stuck in a prison and unhappy, perhaps despairing, fighting with other prisoners, whatever. People who are hopeful, normally they're running in fields, they're playing sports, they're going to school, they're doing life. Prisoners of hope. These are not normal prisoners. (laughs) These prisoners have a real hope. Even as the people have been in exile, they've returned from exile. They're still sort of in exile even in Jerusalem because things don't feel right. God says, you are the prisoners of hope. Because if you would have it, there is, here is the hope that I'm declaring to you. <laughs> chapter 9, chapter 10, the surrounding chapters. You are not the prisoners of despair. You are not those who are stuck and who have nothing. You are prisoners of hope. 
Or we think almost of like in the New Testament when God says uh, through Paul that we, when we grieve, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we know what is coming. We know eternal life is coming. Prisoners of hope. Yes, life is rough. Yes, you're stuck in a Jerusalem that's not what you want it to be yet. You're stuck still with perhaps relatives or friends who stayed back in Babylon and you wish they were with you. You're stuck still dealing with the effects of Babylon that you got used to that culture and what does it mean to live for God now? Yeah, you're a prisoner, but you're a prisoner of hope. There's more to come. And specifically, the more to come is his saving work. And so check this out in in the next coming verses here. Verse 13, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Verse 14, the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. God will attack. He will take the offensive. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. He will defend. He will attack with his arrow. He will protect them in general. Verse, 15, uh, verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. He will attack, he will protect, he will save. Verse 17, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Do you see this progression? Like God will attack, God will protect, God will save. God is great. God is beautiful. He is amazing. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Like, this is what we're looking at. Yeah, I I don't see the way forward, but you know what? He's going to attack. He's going to protect. He's going to save. He's amazing. I don't have to do a thing. He's the one who's doing it all. He will save his people. Then God will provide for his people as we turn into chapter 10. First six or so verses show this clearly. So God will punish the wicked, God will deliver his people, God will provide for his people. Ask for rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. So you're turning to God for provision. Ask him. Verse 2, because the household gods utter nonsense. So all these household gods are pointless. What they're saying is nothing. Turn to God instead. He is the one who provides for real. Ask from God, not from other sources. You might turn to these household gods. Even being in Babylon, you might have acquired some because the Babylonian culture infected you with those ideas. Turn to God, not the household gods. Turn to God, not the other sources that you might hope in. He will redeem. He will provide. He then says in verse 2, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. They're beaten down. They don't have a shepherd. And yet in verse 3, he says, my anger is hot against the shepherds. Well, so which one is it, God? Do they have shepherd or not? I think it's clear from the contrast he's making. They don't have a faithful shepherd. They have a lack of a real shepherd. Instead, they have these smaller shepherds who are doing a horrible job, (laughs) who are misdirecting them onto falsehood. So he says, my anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders these so-called shepherds who are betraying you by giving you the wrong leadership, the wrong guidance. They're turning you away from trusting in God and turning you to trust in other sources, other things. 
He says, I will punish them, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Verse 4. Four times in verse 4 it says, from him. From him shall come the cornerstone. Now, what is the cornerstone? It's one of the key building blocks of a building back then. It's set at the corner. You're building walls out from it. You're building a foundation up from it. From him will come this foundation stone. From him, the tent peg. You can't hold up a tent or seal a tent, whichever one it's referring to, without the peg. You have to have something to hold it in place, right? The structure of a tent. From him will come the battle bow. You can't shoot an arrow without a bow. From him shall come every ruler, all of them together. From God who the previous verses have said, ask of him for rain, not of the household gods. My anger is hot against the shepherds who've misdirected you. From God shall come everything. All things, all good things are all coming from him to lead his people. There's this thing that we sometimes use, some of you might have heard of, called a video game. Of the video games that are out there, one of the greatest classics known to modern man it's called Super Smash Brothers. And all the kids cheer. And some of the adults are like, you've totally lost me, you moron. Super Smash Brothers is a game wherein characters from other video games all gather together and beat each other up. It's basically the, the idea. So you've got, you know, Mario over here. You've got Luigi over here. They're brothers, but brothers fight. So they beat each other up and kick each other into the sky and, you know, lose lives and all this kind of fun stuff. You got random other characters that come in and explode fire on them and they get burned and somehow they're at 300% damage and yet they're not dead. They just are still fighting. Then they get kicked way off into space and they come back again because you get to res resurrect more lives, right? So there you go. There's your general context for those of you who have never played the game. What's really funny to do is to ask your sisters and your mother to play the game who have never played it before. Now, if they played it before, it's not as funny. But if they've never played it before, like my sisters many, many years ago, and my wife. And we were sitting around, my brothers and I, and we thought it would be great. Like, hey, you guys should come play this. It'll be cool. And we knew exactly what we thought it would be cool because they had no idea what they were doing. And so what happened is we give them the controllers. We tell them, here's the thing. And if you press the A button, you know, they'll fight and, you know, kind of give them some basics. And so they're sitting there, and you got four characters. They all, oh, time to fight. And they all, you know, land. The music's going in the background. One of them, you know, kind of, goes like this, and like this, you know, and like this, and then like this, because one of, the, one of the women decides to use the arrow button a couple times, but not press it down, because she didn't know that you have to hold it down for them to run, right? And the other one's just standing there. <laughs> like, press A. Okay, no, 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 do it again. No, again and again, like, keep going and move at the same time. Like, okay, this is really funny to watch. Because as people who have played Super Smash Brothers a lot, if you were to watch me and my brothers play, you land and you're immediately jumping at each other, right? Like there's action, you know what's happening. And we're watching our, our relatives, our women, try to play this game and they have no clue what they're doing. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because those video game characters have no power of their own. They're just little digital characters standing there and they need a wise and smart controlling human being to give them actual brains and actual action. They are fully and completely dependent and this is what God says here. I'm going to give you the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, every ruler. I am the one providing everything. 
from God's provision, you will have something. You will have strength to proceed. Verse 5, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. But they shall fight because the Lord is with them. From God comes your strength. From God comes your ability. From God comes your tools and your weapons to be able to be in the battle that you're facing. And whether that's a battle that was literally against foreign nations who were attacking them, whether it's a battle that was figuratively against the sin they were dealing with or the sin and struggles we deal with today, it still remains the same. Without God, you're just kind of standing there, bobbing, waiting for someone to come punch you in the face. (laughs) With God active in your life and dependence on him, you have strength and you have tools and you have ability to live and live well. He is the one who provides for his people. He'll punish the wicked. He will deliver his people. He'll provide for his people. God will restore his people. As we look at the final half of Zechariah 10, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. The people of of Judah, of Joseph, of Israel, God's people, they had been rejected. They had been cast away to exile. They had gone through 70 years of exile in Babylon, and those who went to Assyria even longer. God says, it shall be as though I had not rejected them. I will have compassion on them. The statement doesn't make sense in many ways of thinking about how we handle trust and restoration and whatever. The fact of the matter is God loves to restore. I will have compassion on them, these who have done so wrong, these who have gone wayward over and over and over again, these who I have pleaded and pleaded and pleaded. You know those times that you're begging a friend or your, your child in particular, and you're like, I've told you 12 times in the past 10 seconds. Why won't you just do this? God's told them how many times throughout the course of this? Like, please, please, over the years, prophets, 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 over and over again, you've not listened, you've not listened, you've turned away, you've turned away, please come back to me, I'll restore you, I don't have to do this. Judges, over and over, the people turn away, they're redeemed, they turn away, they're redeemed. Over and over and over, this unending cycle, it seems, of God pleading with his people, return, return, return. And in 2023 and many years prior, so often we say, once trust is lost, it's lost forever. And God says, it shall be as though I had not rejected them. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. Like we looked at earlier, he understands the enemy behind the enemy. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. And because of his compassion, he restores us. Because of his compassion and his desire for his glory and his desire for our good and so many other factors, but because of his compassion, he sent Jesus to redeem and to make a way for us to be restored and for it to be as though he had never rejected us. For us to be able to live as though we were never condemned. For us to be able to live as though we were never dead. Because Jesus took it all, and now we're in him. And now when 
any question of our standing before God comes up. It's our standing in Christ, and we're bound to Jesus, and so we're good. And it's not because we were awesome. It's not because we got everything right. It's not because we ever got anything right. You're still screwing up. I'm still screwing up every day. Congratulations. Be encouraged. You're a failure. (laughs) But Jesus makes it good. He makes it as though you were never rejected. That's what God does. He loves to restore. May we be those who love to restore too. And it's hard. And there are situations that don't make any sense. And we're not sure how to handle them. But we know the heart of God is for restoration. You see this this theme in the Lord in verse 7 and verse 9 in particular. Their children shall see it and be glad in verse 7. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I said verse 9. Nope. I didn't mean verse 9. Where did I mean it? Uh, Sorry, verse 12, in his name. So verse 7, they're going to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 12, they shall walk in his name. So God's saying, your existence is going to be bound to being in me. You're rejoicing in me, not in other things. You're walking in my name, not in other ways. That's what it looks like to be, in verse 12, also strong in the Lord. To be strong in him, to be living by his strength, means having hope, means having a way forward, means having strength to face the day's difficulties. Have you ever known someone who likes restoring old things? Maybe they have a 1920s Duesenberg or something that they want to bring back and use. Maybe they have an old toy or some old machine, a robot or an automated mailbox or who knows. They like using maybe an old door from an old house. They want to sand it down and repaint it, care for it. Why don't they just throw it on the fire? That old door could make some kindling. You can buy a new one. That's my attitude. Do you know why that's my attitude? Because I don't have compassion on that old door. (laughs) I don't see character and value in it. I see a destroyed old thing that might as well go away and we'll replace it with a better one. Well, I don't care about restoring an old car, but there's so much care and attention. And if we may, compassion for that old car, for the one restoring it to see its former glory and to desire its future glory as it's restored and usable again for the one who's restoring an old house to see its rundown condition and what it used to be and what it will become as I work on it. There is a great amount of care here in a broken thing. As you try to work on, I had a, a friend in uh, California who has an old Mustang. And when we lived out there, he was working on restoring it the entire time that we lived out there, three years. And it was like, Work, work, work is job, buy a part, put the part in. Okay, that part's good. Work is job, get a part, put that part in. Oh, the other part broke. Oh, my goodness. Eventually, the car is working. It can drive it. Oh, it broke down. Got to drive it again. Like, so much effort. The thing was not perfect just because he loved it. Right? He had to deal with a car that was still in a state of difficulty because not everything was right yet. God has to deal with us in a state of difficulty. Not everything's right, and yet he cares and loves and has compassion, and he knows, yes, you're broken, Be encouraged. You're broken, and God knows it. You don't have to hide or pretend like you have your life together. You don't have to pretend like you don't screw up every day or like you know the answers because you are the fount of all wisdom. You're not, and you're not fooling anybody, and you're definitely not fooling God. And he says, yeah, you're not, and I love you, and I have compassion on you, and I'll restore you anyway because I love you and because of my covenant with you. 
So Zechariah points the people, and God points the people through Zechariah to hope that lasts. And the thing we've got to see, and I've already referenced it, but this is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. He is the one who rides in on a donkey, literally, fulfilling that text to its fullest. He is the one who truly brings righteousness and salvation and comes meekly to redeem. He is the one who, who has compassion on those who are hurting, who doesn't break a, a, a trembling reed, as Isaiah says, who doesn't beat you down when you're beaten down, but instead bears you up and lifts you up in the midst of your difficulties. He is the one who came in human flesh to be just like us and to know the difficulties we face, as Hebrews said, to be a perfect high priest who can understand our weakness, who has dealt with all of the temptations we deal with. He was hungry. He was tired. He was weak. He was beaten down by people who didn't like him, who insulted him as he walked past. He knows how it feels to be human. He came and did this all to redeem and to be with you and to redeem you to be with him. So this message that, that there is hope and that there is a, a glorious, beautiful sovereign who attacks and defends and saves and is amazing is the fuel for our hope, should be the fuel for our hope. This should be, and it can be, fuel for bold, powerful, confident prayer. It can be the fuel that God will restore you despite your sin if you're following Jesus and no one can stop him from restoring you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers. I think sometimes it's still true for, for unbelievers. Like if they confess their sin, he will save them. But we gotta realize 1 John was written to those who believe. And when he says to those who believe, if you say you have no sin, you lie. But if you confess your sin, he's going to forgive you. <laughs> that is the day-by-day -day promise to you in the midst of your sin and struggles, is that you're going to sin, part one. Part two, admit it. Part three, when you confess your sin, he forgives. He cares. He's compassionate. He loves you. He has hope every day for you. Romans 8, 28 to 39 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Quick pause. What is the reason we know everything's working together for good for those who love God? Because ultimately you're going to be glorified. It's not because we know that tomorrow is going to be better than today or that you lost one car so you're getting two cars or anything like that. It's because those whom he foreknew, he predestined, who he called, who he justified, who he glorified. So we know that all things are working together for good because step, 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 you'll be glorified. This is a forward-looking, future-hoping, eternal perspective on your life. All is working together for ultimate good. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has put us on a trajectory of hope because of his redeeming love and his work. So you, all of you and me, we still are prisoners of hope. We still live in a hard and broken world. We still fight against sin. We still struggle with the ups and downs of life. We still struggle with the personalities that God's given us and the ways they impact us, all this kind of fun stuff. It's all very fun, right? So fun. But we are prisoners of hope. We're not yet home. Hope in your sovereign, all-sufficient Savior. He is the one who gives you a future and a hope. He is the one who will glorify you. Anxiety thrives on despair. Anxiety wants us to look to the future and say there is no hope. And whether that's the future tomorrow or the future in a year or whatever, there is no hope. And like Viktor Frankl's compatriots there in the concentration camps who lost hope, their life was dragged down as a result and they died. And many of us, when we, when we lose hope and we get caught in anxiety, we're, we're stuck in this despair, our lives also are drugged down very quickly. We can see it happen. We can feel it happen. But hope thrives on confidence. And not confidence in me. And this confidence doesn't have to know how or when. This whole entire text in Zechariah doesn't tell how and when in specifics, but it tells who. It tells that God is the one who does it all, who gives it all, who gives the strength, who redeems, who provides all of this. My confidence can be in the who, even when I can't see how or when, even when I don't even trust how or when. I can trust the who. I can know the who. And my confidence for tomorrow is bound to who is doing it, not to what or how he's doing it. My confidence for a year from now or 10 years from now or anything, right? If we can be in that frame of mind, we have hope in every situation. And it's not because this situation is perfect. It's because the one leading us through it is perfect and has it all. So be those prisoners of hope who hope in the Savior. And so let's look carefully at our own lives and where our hopes are. Because even as we talked about this past summer, there are a lot of other potential saviors we might hope in. We might hope, for example, in our insurance to provide for us. When my health goes bad, my health insurance will step in. Secret hint, no, it won't. It's the United States. <laughs> Your health insurance has a high deductible. You're still going to pay a bunch of money. Maybe my retirement plan. I'm going to save up so much money by the time that I'm 85 that I'll have enough to live on until I die at 88. Right? Guaranteed. My retirement plan. It's certain. No, it's not. Stock markets crash. Your retirement plan's based on some mutual fund that's going to be poorly invested. Or maybe it'll do well. Who knows? Problem is, it's not trustworthy. God is. Maybe it's the stock market because that's very stable. And so I'll just invest directly in that with all of my wisdom or my financial advisor's wisdom, and that will form my foundation. Or maybe it's politics. We'll get the right people in place, and that'll form the life that I want to live. Or maybe my safety tactics. If I do the right things, I'll always be safe, and so will my family. Any number of other things. And here's the problem. With all of these things that can be good, can be useful, all of them taken as the joy and hope of our heart, 
will be an idol that seeks to supplant God. And we might not say it in these words, but what we're really doing is we're getting insurance in case God doesn't pull through for me. Or we're getting a retirement plan in case God doesn't pull through for me. And we got to watch out carefully for that mindset. Because again, these can be fine and good things. I'm not saying everyone go sell your retirement plan and get no insurance and just go, you know, stab yourself in scissors and see what happens. I'm saying God needs to be our hope. And we should never seek to have a God insurance plan. He is trustworthy always. And because of his covenant, he will always be faithful. So we don't need to get insurance just in case God doesn't pull through. We can get insurance as a faithful part of our existence and seeking to you know, have things in order that God can use for us. But it, let it never be the case that insurance or retirement or any of these other things, stock market, politics, et cetera, things that even list would be our replacement for God. God has called us to live in this world at this time with hope in him forever. So let's do that. Let's hope in him forever. Let's have joy for each day and look to Jesus, our Savior, and not anything else. God, thank you for doing everything that we can't do. Thank you for being so much more than our human systems can ever be. Thank you for being the redeemer that we cannot create for ourselves. Thank you for having compassion on broken people and sinful people. Thank you that through Jesus, we can be as though we were never enemies. As though you never had reason to reject us, we can be in Christ and have hope and joy, lasting peace. We pray that you would ground us every day in that hope, even as Viktor Frankl observed, that those who have hope for the future have a better present and that we would be willing to take you at your word and trust in the hope you've provided, the greatest hope, because it's not even just an uncertain hope that we want to happen someday, maybe. It is a certain hope because you are doing it. You are leading us there. You are taking us to an eternity with you in your good timing and by your good methods. Help us to have confidence in you. And when we can't see how and we can't see where and we can't see what, we can't see why, we can know the who, we can know that it's you. Pray that you would give us abounding peace, that you would help us to speak the peace to the nations that you are already speaking, that you would help us to speak the peace to our own souls that you are already speaking. Help us to be those who are filled with compassion like you for the broken and for the sinful, to be those who see behind the sinner to the root cause of sin and the powers of darkness, that it would impact the way that we love others impact the way that we love those in our family, the way that we love those in our friends, the way that we love our enemies, that we would be stubbornly hopeful in what is good because we know you are in it all. Thank you for the encouragement that we have. Thank you for the windows that you open into the future to give us a glimpse of this hope. Thank you for not leaving us uncertain and just knowing that something's there, but who knows what. But instead, you show us yourself. Help us to be free of these things that would otherwise claim our hearts. Help us to release them to you. Help us to, to rejoice in your goodness. Even as that verse 9 said, rejoice, your Savior is coming with righteousness and salvation seated on a donkey. Help us to be those who rejoice in Jesus' meekness and his power and his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.